This is exactly right. This story contains adult content and language. Listener discretion is advised. So poisons are wonderfully devious chemical compounds. They trick our bodies. If you take an element like radium, it's structurally like calcium. So it, it literally, the body takes radium and sends it to the bones where it wreaks all kinds of harm because it looks to the body like calcium. That was really what I was thinking about when I first started thinking about this book. The deviousness of chemical compounds matched by the deviousness of poisoners. I'm Kate Winkler-Dawson, a nonfiction author and journalism professor in Austin, Texas. I'm also the host of the historical true crime podcast, Tenfold More Wicked on Exactly Right. I've traveled around the world interviewing people for the show. I've interviewed some people in person and some from my home studio over Zoom, and they are all excellent writers. They've had so many great true crime stories, and now we want to tell you those stories with details that have never been published. Wicked Words is about the choices that writers make, good and bad. It's a deep dive into the stories behind the stories. Deborah Blum is a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist, and she's written a wonderful book called The Poisoner's Handbook. I read it when I was doing research for my true crime book, American Sherlock, because she is an expert at fusing narrative journalism with science with murder. Deborah is the director of the Knight Science Journalism Program at MIT. We start with the story of how she became a science writer, and it's hilarious. I started out in college as a chemistry major. I discovered very quickly that I didn't have the kind of attention span that you need to be safe in a laboratory to yourself or others. So <laughs> my freshman year, I was at Florida State. I generated a toxic cloud. They had to evacuate the laboratory. <laughs> and then I set my hair on fire. <laughs> and so after that, I mean, I literally thought to myself, I'm not going to survive this profession. <laughs> and I went into journalism because I like to know how things work. So over the years, I would say to my book agent, I want to do a book in which poisons are characters. And that was really the start of this book. Because to me, poisons are really fascinating. I mean, we live in a chemical world. I'm sitting here inhaling chemicals as we speak. You're drinking chemicals. What? And neither of us are keeling over because most chemicals are not harmful. And so poisons have to be really devious chemical compounds. They trick our bodies. To be a poisoner, you have to plan ahead. You can't be an impulse poisoner. You can't say, I'm super mad at you or I really want your fortune. <laughs> and so I'm just going to rush over and research the best possible poison and get back to you later. They're premeditated. Yes, I mean, and of all weapons, poisons are always premeditated. You can lose your temper with a gun. You can be fearful with a brick, right? But you have to think ahead and plan if you're going to be a poisoner. I knew it was going to be a history. I knew poisons were going to be characters, but I needed someone who was going to carry the story. And I really think because I was so panicked, I found Charles Norris and Alexander Gettler. Charles Norris was the first medical examiner of New York City, and he came in in 1918. One of his first hires was Alexander Gettler, who was literally the first toxicologist ever attached to an American city. Huh. So they were like inventing forensic science at this moment, and they had disappeared. 
And so I went on this insane hunt to find these guys. I went to the New York City Municipal Archives where they had archived the letters of the city medical examiner's office. In this one period, the Poisoner's Handbook spans a period from about 1918 to 1935, right through the Jazz Age and Prohibition and the craziness of the 20s. And that was where they had archived these letters. And it's like putting together a mosaic. And I knew also, in addition to, you know, doing the chemistry work and the toxicology work and finding Gettler and Norris and clues to who they were, I wanted to make it a period piece. I wanted people to feel like they were in that period. So I was also looking in the newspapers and magazines of the time for portraits of the time. And then the last thing I did is I hunted down the descendants of Alexander Gettler. Good for you. And they had all of these old journals and letters and different pictures in a closet. And they came down and met me at my hotel in New York City and let me borrow these things. And so throughout Poisoner's Handbook, the arc of Poisoner's Handbook is these two underpaid civil servants. But these guys are on this quest to try to figure out how to catch killers. And at this particular period in time, I mean, I really believe that people today, when they're watching all these, you know, Bones and CSI and all of these other shows, they don't realize how recent forensic science is, that we're really talking about the 1930s before some of the pieces start coming together. Right. So these guys are building that. And that became really fascinating to me, too. Well, and I think it's wonderfully told because you do feel like the poisons are characters. We learn a little bit about the history. We learn where we are in time. Your book coincidentally covers basically the same years. My my book was 1920 to 1933. It is a fantastic time period to go through prohibition to the roaring 20s to the Depression and see how it affects your character. I want to start with who is the poisoner? There's an idea that most poisoners are women, which is numerically not true. Hmm. And if you look at FBI statistics today, what you'll find is numerically more poisoners are men. But that's because men account for about 90-odd percent of assaults. So by numbers, there's so many more of them that numerically more poisoners are men. If you look at recent FBI statistics... Women are seven times as likely to choose poison. Yes, of course. So why is that? Because it's a non-confrontational method of dealing with an enemy. Mm -hmm. You can do it. You can step away. You are going to know that you're going to be doing physical harm, depending. I mean, you're killing the person, but some poisons are acutely painful. And so when you're picking that poison, you're picking it partly in a vindictive way. And so arsenic's also super available. I mean... Rat poison, right? Didn't they use it for rats? That rough on rats was a famous rat poison, (laughs) right? Oh, wow. And it was also used in cosmetics, especially in the late 19th century, to purify your complexion. Hmm. I love, personally love arsenic as a poison. It was ruined by science because it was the first homicidal poison to become detectable in a body. Hmm. And that was in the 19th century. But even in the 20th century, it was widely available. So here's what makes a great homicidal poison. Arsenic is perfect. It's odorless and tasteless. Mm -hmm. You can put it in anything. When toxicologists first started looking at arsenic, they would taste test tiny amounts of it in things like vanilla pudding, and they couldn't taste it. So it's perfect for whatever you want to serve it up in. 
It's a broad spectrum poison that mimics the symptoms of a natural illness. So even when we know how to detect arsenic, we don't always suspect it. People got a sore throat. Hmm. People got an upset stomach. If you just gave arsenic in doses over several months, people got sick. It looked like a natural illness, gastroenteritis. And so people were still, it was kind of crazy to me to see how many people were using arsenic at that time period because they could get away with it. When you look at some of the most famous mass murderers in our history who are poison killers, it's almost always arsenic. And in the 19th century, its nickname was the inheritance powder. Oh, gosh. Because it was so widely used. So you have a city department in New York with this one really brilliant obsessed chemist. I mean, Geller used to go out and buy raw liver and inject things into it just to see if the cells would disintegrate. When does arsenic fall out of favor? Probably mid-20th century is when I stopped seeing it, really. I've looked at a lot of different poisonings, and, and there's some really good arsenic poisonings probably into the 1950s. It's a highly detectable poison, and the other thing about it is it doesn't go away. I mean, arsenic's a metalloid poison. It stays in the body the way lead would stay in the body or, you know, any of the metallic poisons, whereas plant alkaloids are much more volatile and they don't stay that long. So, you know, there's there's sort of those kinds of issues involved. But the other thing that happened is that the government started really restricting access to it. Hmm. So a lot of the poisons that you could readily get, I mean, try to go down to your local pharmacy now and buy arsenic. What is the current arsenic? What is used now that people get away with? Is it antifreeze? Yeah, that's a good question. Antifreeze was kind of the arsenic of our time. It was very vogue for a while. Most manufacturers put a bittering agent in it, but that wasn't because of the homicidal problem. That was because of pets. Antifreeze is really sweet until they ruined it. Um, (laughs) But no, that's a good one. Actually, people use, and this is what I mean, people use poisons at hand. They'll use opioids. Uh, They'll use eye drops. Like, you know, the get the red out eye drops. The way they do that is they shrink the blood vessels in your eye. They're vasoconstricting. Well, if you're drinking something that's constricting your blood vessels, that's really dangerous. And so people have used eye drops to try to kill people. There was a great case. I can go on and on about this because I know way too much about it. But there was a really interesting case in Colorado in which a woman wanted to kill her husband and she grew foxglove in their garden. Okay. And foxglove contains digitalis. And so she just picked the leaves and started tossing them in his salads. So here's the other thing about being a smart poisoner. You have to get the dose right. People screw this up all the time. And I have no idea what the correct dose is with leaves <laughs> from a plant in a salad. L- luckily but, for your husband. <laughs> right. But he uh, he ended up in the hospital and when they pumped his stomach, they were like, what are these weird leaves? And so she got caught, and this happens to people all the time too today. You just want to cause trouble. You just want to cause havoc. You just like the idea. And, you know, we were talking about antifreeze or eye drops or back in the day that I'm writing about arsenic or cyanide was used in metal polishes, right? Mercury bichloride was used on bed bugs. You had this incredible array of really bad things that you could get your hand on. And and that's true for all of us. And most of us don't. Most of us don't have a 
in ourselves to just plan and plot and use these weapons. We're not like that. Poisoners are rare. They're more rare now than they were, though, back in the day. So I've seen crime statistics that suggest in the 19th century, about a third of all homicides were poison. And today they're like one to two percent. Hmm. Because people think they're detectable, they won't get away with it. Is that what it is? That's the the fact that they think they're detectable. I mean, because the because the poisoner wants to get away with it. Right. People think there's some amazing undetectable poison, but that's not true. There really isn't. We can find almost any of them, but you have to run the test to look for it. Talk me through your best case. And I saw carbon monoxide makes an appearance in two parts, but pick whichever ones. I mean, we have plenty of time. So pick whatever ones you can really dig into and kind of show off Norris and Gettler's skills the most. Okay. Yeah, that'll be really fun. So let me take carbon monoxide for a minute because it makes a wonderful forensic arc. And because I actually also really like carbon monoxide because it's efficient. It's a waste of time to have an inefficient poison. You want one that works. And carbon monoxide is a really reliable poison. So in the 1920s, electricity is flourishing and everyone has electric lighting. But in fact, that was really for people who had money. And so in the poorer neighborhoods in New York City, which is where this story is set, they didn't have electricity. They were still using what was called illuminating gas. You're the toxicologist, okay? And you're called to one of these poor apartments. It's in a tenement building, blue collar, working class in New York City. And this one was on the Lower East Side of Manhattan. And you're called because there's been an accidental illuminating gas death. And at that time, there were about 1,000 to 1,200 accidental illuminating gas deaths in New York City. And illuminating gas was a coal-derived gas. It contained two primary gases mixed together. One was hydrogen, so it was explosive. And when you would get an accidental illuminating gas leak, if you walked into your apartment and lit a cigarette, the apartment blew up. But the other thing it contains is carbon monoxide. And so you had these two dangerous gases. You had hydrogen, you had carbon monoxide. Carbon monoxide naturally is also odorless and tasteless. It's just why it's still dangerous today and we still get carbon monoxide deaths. You know, people leave a car running or power goes out and they use a charcoal grill in their living room for heat and it's emitting carbon monoxide and you can't smell it. So now they usually, like with your gas stove that has carbon monoxide in the natural gas, they put a bittering agent. It's called chloropicrin. So if your pilot light goes out and you smell gas, you're not smelling the carbon monoxide, you're smelling the chloropicrin. And they did that because of all these accidental illuminating gas deaths. So this guy decides that he's going to use that as a cover. So Geller gets called to this poor apartment and it's clearly some kind of gas leak. There's actually a gas fitting broken in the apartment. And when he goes back into the bedroom, he looks and there's a young woman dead in the bed. The cops are opening the windows to air out the apartment. The woman has clearly been dead for some time because she's pale and cold and stiff. And he takes one look at the body and says, nope, that's not an illuminating gas death. He doesn't even have to cross the room. So I actually gave the clue to that when I was describing her, which is pale. Because when carbon monoxide bonds with your bloodstream and muscles the oxygen out, it's about a 200 times as strong a bond as oxygen has. 
So even if you're in a room that has oxygen in it, it's not going to go into your bloodstream. And so what happens as the carbon monoxide bonds, it changes the color of your blood. And it's such a strong bond. It makes your blood this deep cherry pink. And people will describe corpses from carbon monoxide deaths as looking very healthy. They're flushed pink. Hmm. And so when you see this body in the bed and she's pale, you know it can't be carbon monoxide just by looking. So they took the body of this woman, this is 1923, back to the morgue and they do a blood draw. And sure enough, there's no carbon monoxide particularly in the blood, but there is another gas, which is carbon dioxide. So if you find high levels of carbon dioxide in the blood, that's a sign of asphyxiation or strangulation or suffocation. There weren't marks on her anywhere? No trauma? There were. And so when they realized that she had this high level of carbon dioxide in her blood, that's what they started looking for. And what they found was under her hair up the back of the neck were the bruises made by her husband's fingers. He had suffocated her and he put a pillow on and held it like with his fingers on the back of her neck and he had done it so hard. I actually have an autopsy sketch from 1923 where you can see these lines radiating from the back of her neck that say abrasion, abrasion, abrasion. And so once they did that, they went back to the husband and he confessed that he had killed her and then broken the gas fitting and tried to fake an illuminating gas death. And so that's a great piece of chemical detective work. That crime is really solved by knowing something about forensic toxicology, which is a really great science. And then putting all the puzzle pieces together and using that information. But Gellner then sat around for a while. I, you know, I imagine him doing this and he thought, yes, but what if her body had just stayed in that room? We hadn't found the body right away and it stayed for many hours in a room filled with carbon monoxide. There's a lot of orifices in the body. Could, could that have worked? Could that carbon monoxide have built up in her bloodstream? And he did some experiments that you could never do today. He went to Charles Norris and asked for unwanted bodies. And during Prohibition, there were a lot of unwanted bodies. People, you know, were drinking poisonous alcohol. They would die. Their families wouldn't claim them. And he built these metal coffins and he put the bodies in them and he filled them with carbon monoxide and he let them sit for days. And it didn't alter the level of the gas in their blood at all. There was no way that you would absorb carbon monoxide after death. So that told him that if you find a body with high levels of carbon monoxide in the blood, it's called carboxyhemoglobin, Uh then that's what killed you. Okay. So that leads me to my next story, which is slightly gruesome. Fantastic. Oh, good. (laughs) About two or three years later, this guy gets caught on the docks in Brooklyn throwing body parts into the river. He's a construction worker, and he lives in this one part of Brooklyn, and the police catch him dropping a bag with a leg in the river, and they go back to his apartment, and there they find the top of the woman's body. Her arms are missing, her legs are missing, but her chest and head are still there. So they immediately charge him with a dismemberment murder. 
So Charles Norris is the medical examiner on call that night. And Norris had come from this very wealthy East Coast family, the Norrises who founded Norristown, Pennsylvania. And even though he worked in this, you know, very battered, underfunded office, he had personal money. And so he always went to crime scenes driven by his chauffeur. And so his chauffeur drives him to this poor shabby rooming house in Brooklyn. And he was a big guy. He had played football at Yale and he sweeps out of the car. I see this in my head like a movie, right? And he goes upstairs and he looks at the body and he says to the police, no, boys, this is not... Uh, dismember. This this doesn't make any sense at all. This woman was dead before she was dismembered. And they go, no, 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 no. And he goes, let me take this back and take a look because what he had seen from across the room is this body, even though there was this massive bleed out, right, from the limbs being cut off, was pink. Hmm. And that suggested to him that it was a carbon monoxide death. And so he goes and they do the draw. And sure enough, she had been killed by a lethal level of carbon monoxide. And they knew from Alexander Gettler's experiments with those bodies that that meant she was dead before she was dismembered. That was enough carbon monoxide to kill her. And so they looked at it and they said, okay, this woman was dead when she was dismembered. What happened, right? He didn't kill her by dismembering her, which was what the police were accusing him of. Wow. And so they went back and they were finally able to reconstruct this. And it turned out that this guy was a neighbor of the woman and he had gotten super drunk on bootleg whiskey. And in the course of this, they had actually knocked out the pilot light on the stove Oh. And the apartment had filled with illuminating gas. Oh, and wow. he, who, he was bigger than her. He had just passed out, but it had killed her. And so he wakes up from this illuminating gas stupor and finds Panic. this dead woman <laughs> in his apartment and panics and makes a, what we're going to call a really bad decision yeah. <laughs> that the only way to deal with this is to get rid of the body, but she's big enough that he has to cut her in pieces to do it. And so he was getting rid of one part of the body when the police caught him, but he hadn't wow. actually killed her. It was an accidental death. So he was charged with illegal dismemberment of a body, but he wasn't charged with murder. What would be a classic example of someone of Gettler and Norris or just Gettler catching someone besides the carbon monoxide cases? What are the telltale signs that we really didn't know until they came along besides the pink in the carbon monoxide? Yeah, that's a good question. Well, I started Poisoner's Handbook with a chapter on chloroform and chloroform makes a really good kind of example of this. There was some very early forensic toxicology at the time that would tell you something about whether chloroform had killed you, but mostly people got away with it. And I I briefly in that book look at the case of William Rice, who was the sort of power behind Rice University, who was killed by chloroform. And because the forensic science of the time was so sketchy, they were never able to fully sort out exactly what happened. So you had this kind of, you know, sketchy, uncertain, but sort of the slow beginning of trying to figure out chloroform. Alexander Geller was the scientist who actually figured it out. And he did this actually in regarding illegal abortion. 
in which the abortionists, and at the time, of course, the 1920s abortions, dangerous and illegal, insanely dangerous, insanely illegal. This guy had used chloroform to put this young woman under, and then he had butchered her. And she had died, and he had pretended that she had just, you know, he couldn't figure it out. She was injured before he got to his place. And Geller was able to actually figure out how to tell how much chloroform would have been in your brain in the time of the surgery. So he could actually track, like, the path of the chloroform in the brain when it reaches peak concentration, when it starts to fade away. I actually have a chapter in my book about thallium, which is an interesting poison. It's a broad-spectrum poison, very difficult to actually detect in the body, but it has very distinctive symptoms. And probably the best known of those symptoms is your hair falls out. And thallium is an element like arsenic. It was used in rat poisons a lot in the early 20th century in particular, and as pesticides. It'll kill anything. You know, going back to my example of poisons tricking the body, thallium gets picked up by the potassium channel. So it clobbers you in every cell hmm. because potassium is everywhere in your body. But it makes your hair fall out. When you start getting a toxic dose, there's an Agatha Christie mystery of the pale horse. If you know anything about thallium, two women are fighting and pulling each other's hair. And one of the women, her hair comes out in clumps. And afterwards, she's like, it didn't hurt. And it turns out to be one of the clues, right? And in the 1930s, it was widely used as depilatory creams for women. And you can go into the Journal of the American Medical Association and find doctors reporting all these bald women. You know, they had tried to use thallium creams to remove their mustache or whatever, and all their hair fell out. Oh, wow. And it kills you. But the case in my book is about someone who was accused of a thallium murder that he didn't commit. We think of these guys as just out there to, you know, catch the killers. But when the evidence shows that person wasn't a killer, that's equally important. So there was a thallium case. Thallium is now also like arsenic, a restricted substance. But there was a murder, I want to say about 2012, 2013, with a woman who was a chemist for Bristol-Myers Squibb, Tianli Lee. She was in New Jersey, and she stole it from their supplies. And she and her husband were going through a messy divorce, and she didn't want to deal with it or him. And so she put thallium in something. It doesn't have a strong taste. And what was bad luck for her is he ended up in... The Rutgers Hospital, and none of them recognized it because no one kills with thallium anymore. Even when his hair started falling out, they were like, what is going on? And he just kept getting sicker and sicker. And there was a nurse in the hospital who had come over from China where there are more thallium poisonings. And so she said to the doctors, this really looks like a case I saw in China. And they ran the test, and sure enough, he was loaded with thallium. That was just pure blind luck. There's an an antidote for it. But by the time they figured it out, it was too late and it killed him anyway. So she went to prison. But, you know, it's a good example of the fact that scientists can be dangerous, right? Yeah. Because there are people, doctors like Neil Cream back in the day or scientists like Tanley Lee today or who have access to these things when the rest of us don't and sometimes use them. 
What is the deadliest thing that we have access to now that's used as a poison? Is it Visine? I mean, that we were talking about eye drops? If you could get your hands on botulinum A, the botulinum bacteria is the bacteria that creates an incredibly lethal neurotoxic poison. They use it in Botox. Oh, yeah. I have all my natural wrinkles, but if I wanted to get rid of these little wrinkles between my forehead and I did a Botox injection, it would paralyze the muscles and you wouldn't see the lines as much. So that poison is actually one of the most poisonous compounds on the planet. It is super lethal. There's a, it's methylmercury, dimethylmercury. That I think that's really hard to get. Is so poisonous that if you touch it and it actually, there was a case where a doc in a lab was working with dimethylmercury and had a tiny hole in her glove and it killed her. Oh, wow. There are a lot of really super poisonous things out there. It's always, you know, how you ingest them that makes a difference. Not every poison goes through your skin the way salts of mercury does, but mercury is really dangerous that way. Why do you think the history of poison is important? You have to think of poisons as chemical weapons. And if you look at the history of humankind, we've long had access to chemical weapons. I mean, arsenic was used hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years ago. The Borgias supposedly figured out a formula of poison that they would put on doorknobs so that they could kill people through skin contact. We have used different poisons, you know, snake poisons, plant poisons. And I was using botulinum A as an example, but a lot of the most poisonous things on the planet are actually natural. So one of the things the history of poison tells us is natural doesn't mean safe. We play that game with ourselves all the time, but some of the most dangerous things on earth are, are naturally occurring. So the more we understand these poisons, the more we can understand them as risks. Uh, radioactive poisons as a homicidal threat, as in Putin. Radioactive poisons as a public health threat, as in the radium girls. And I think it gives a lot of insight into who we are, the way we use them, the way we regulate or don't regulate against risks. How much do we really care about protecting the general public? Regulations are just consumer protection. How do we make smart decisions as individuals about what risks we worry about? I want to talk about two more quick cases, just because I know that the audience likes the razzle-dazzle of the cases. I like the wood alcohol. Yeah, I love that story because it's actually a story of the U.S. government as a homicidal poisoner. (laughs) And during the 1920s, there was actually the Chicago Tribune ran an editorial saying that the 18th Amendment, which was the amendment behind prohibition, it outlawed trade and transportation of alcohol, was the only constitutional amendment that carried the death penalty with it. And you will also find newspaper stories of the time in which people called the U.S. government the Borgia government. So why is that? Prohibition was a really moral crusade by a small group of people who believed that they could make society like them by restricting access to alcohol. We wouldn't have public drunkenness and intoxication and annoying people on the streets. And they were able, and part of this sort of societal upset that surrounded World War One, where people felt like everything was falling apart, to put through this idea of controlling behavior through controlling alcohol. It immediately went south. The 1920s is the most 
anarchistic decade, I think, at least up until this point, but the most anarchistic decade in American history because there's a constitutional amendment and people flout it by the millions. You have illegal bars called speakeasies everywhere. In the decade, there were like 14,000 of them in New York City alone. And so if you're having bars and the sale of alcohol is illegal, where do you get the alcohol? You're saying, screw the 18th Amendment and the Volstead Act, which went into enforce it, I'm just going to drink. But where am I going to get my alcohol? So people put stills in their houses. Sometimes people talk about bathtub gin, and they would distill whatever organic material they could get their hands on, which was sometimes the furniture. And so you can distill wood. It's called destructive distillation of wood and get wood alcohol. The alcohol we drink today, and I include myself in the drinking alcohol today group, is ethanol, which we get from grain or grapes or potatoes for vodka or whatever. But from wood, you get methanol or wood alcohol. And it tastes like and acts like just like grain alcohol in the early stages, except that it's poisonous. And the reason it's poisonous is because we metabolize grain alcohol or ethyl alcohol to carbon dioxide and water, and we metabolize wood alcohol to formaldehyde and formic acid. And formic acid attacks your optic nerves. One of the first symptoms of methanol poisoning is blindness, and formaldehyde kills you. And so it literally cooks you in formaldehyde from the inside when you're drinking Oof. wood alcohol. And you start as having wood alcohol deaths from these home brews, from some of the illegal alcohol that the bootleggers were stealing, industrial alcohol, which has a lot of methanol in it. And they were trying to clean it up a little. They hired chemists to get the wood alcohol out of the mix, but they couldn't always get it all out. So you had a lot of alcohol-related poisonings that were wood or methyl alcohol. And then the government is getting increasingly frustrated because despite the amendment, everyone's drunk. And they were drunker. There was nothing like a nice light glass of wine. Everything's whiskey at this point. You're just drinking straight alcohol. So the government decides to enforce prohibition by adding more wood or methyl alcohol into the industrial alcohol, which is being stolen. About 60 million gallons of industrial alcohol were being stolen every year during prohibition. And so they said, well, let's just make it more poisonous. And so then people won't drink it. And that doesn't happen. But they put enough methanol into the mix that the bootleg chemists can't get it out. And hmm. so you start seeing this wave of die-offs related to this illegally traded alcohol. In New York, the first year, I think there were a thousand people dead. They thought maybe 10-ish thousand nationwide. And so that's why you start seeing people calling the U.S. government the Borgia government. And Charles Norris, one of my heroes, actually wrote a magazine article called Our National Experiment in Extermination because he felt that that's what we were doing. And he knew, and this is also true, that the people who were really getting poisoned were, you know, not the Scott and Zelda Fitzgerald who had a lot of money and partied with their bootleggers and got good stuff, but working class people who couldn't afford the good stuff. And so to me, in the most important message in that story is that moral crusades are dangerous. You think the ends justify the means, and they really don't ever justify the means. And so you have the government believing this and having the power to actually poison its own citizens in what they saw as a moral cause. And so to me, that's the story of the U.S. government. And this time period is 
murderer. What about Mercury? And this is the last one. So my Mercury case is actually a case of finding someone innocent, but... Good, good, um, finally. (laughs) Which is a good thing, but Mercury was widely available at the time, not now. Actually, when I was a kid, you could get elemental Mercury by breaking a thermometer. Right, me too. And elemental Mercury is not as dangerous as salts of Mercury, because if you actually, you know, you play with it, it skitters off your skin, but it doesn't absorb through your skin. I used to push those little Mercury balls around never had mercury poisoning. Whereas once you mix mercury with a salt, which is like bichloride of mercury, which is a pesticide or was also actually used to treat syphilis, you're getting something that really absorbs. And so you did see accidental mercury deaths at the time. You saw some homicidal mercury deaths. The way we're most exposed to mercury today is from air pollution. You have mercury fallout from air pollution. It goes into the water, fish absorb it. It's one of the reasons that the federal government today now suggests that you don't eat too much tuna, especially if you're pregnant because of the amount of mercury in the tuna. The story I told in the book was about a guy who a lot of people thought was kind of one of these, um, I don't know, the, you know, the kind of man who gloms onto a wealthy society woman and engineers himself a cushy life. His name was Webb, and he married a wealthy young woman, Gertrude, and her family and her friends all believed he only married her for the money. And they had only been married a couple of years when she mysteriously died, and the doctor found mercury in her system. And the family publicly accused him of poisoning her with mercury, which was super easy to get. And so he goes through this very public trial. I mean, her family was actually holding press conferences. And this was out at a resort. It wasn't in New York City. It was at this sort of fancy resort for wealthy people that was a little bit out of the city. And the local doctor took it upon himself to do the the chemical analysis and was like, oh, this is definitely a homicidal mercury poisoning. And so finally, the New York City Medical Examiner's Office got called in as a consultant because Charles Webb, the publicly accused husband, was a resident of New York City. And so Gettler got the samples and reanalyzed them and was like, this doesn't even make sense. It wasn't a toxic dose of mercury to begin with. And then he later discovered that her doctor, who had been sort of hiding in the wings, had been treating her with a mercury compound. And so the mercury in her body was actually just related to the medical treatment, and she had actually died from a natural cause of death. And so they were able to publicly exonerate him. And then they all went and apologized and hoped that he would share her fortune with them. (laughs) I'm guessing not. (laughs) But for some reason, he was holding a grudge (laughs) and refused to do it. But he did. There's actually a park in New York City that is named after her that he set up in her honor. And so that goes back to the case I was making earlier. People will accuse, and especially when poison is floating around anywhere, it's really easy to accuse people. And especially in the time period that I'm talking about in the 1930s, people did not mess around with the death penalty in the 1930s. So you had actual cases where people would be convicted and they were electrocuted within the month. There was not this long appeal process. And a number of the people who I followed who were guilty, that was true. And going back to arsenic for 
a minute in that time frame. Early on in my book, I have this murderous Fanny Creighton retrospectively had clearly killed her brother with arsenic and gets away with it. And then she, in the way that poisoners always believe that they can, you know, do it again, appears again in Gettler's orbit in the mid-1930s. And she and one of her neighbors have conspired to kill his wife. And so they use rat poison, rough on rats, that they put into a kind of milkshake thing. And this time she gets caught. She was electrocuted almost on the instant after that case. And one of the things that happened to me after Poisoner's Handbook came out is that one of her great-grandkids contacted me because he was trying to find where she was buried. And after she was electrocuted at Sing Sing, the family, her husband and daughter refused to bury her. They didn't want anything to do with her. They wanted her to disappear. And so she's actually buried in the graveyard at the Sing Sing prison, which I was able to tell him. And that was the other thing I realized when you were mentioning this, I realized that you've run into this too, was that a number of times I would be contacted by people who were the descendants of murderers or victims of murders from the 1920s. And I was like, wow, that happened 100 years ago. And I talked about this. I gave a talk at the New York City Medical Examiner's Office about some of these people who had come after I wrote the book. And they said, oh, yeah, you know, we see this all the time. People come back for decades because they didn't get justice because they're still trying to find justice. And it's just a reminder of what a long shadow a murder casts. On the next episode of Wicked Words, Paula Yu on the murder that shook Detroit's Asian-American community. He was beaten into a coma on June 19th, 1982. June 23rd, 1982 is when they took him off life support. And then he was buried on June 29th, 1982, one day after the June 28th wedding was supposed to take place. And all the wedding guests went to the funeral instead of the wedding. The time that he was in a coma, they were getting wedding presents were being delivered to the house. My new book, All That Is Wicked, is available for pre-order now, including the audiobook. All That Is Wicked is based on our first season of Tenfold More Wicked. You might think you know the whole story of killer Edward Ruloff's crimes, but there's so much more. My book, American Sherlock, is also available. This has been an exactly right Tenfold More Media production. The producer is Alexis Amorosi. Our mixer is Ryo Baum. Our sound designer is Andrew Epen. Curtis Heath is our composer. Nick Toga did the artwork. Ilsa Brink designed the website. The executive producers are Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgariff, and Danielle Kramer. Follow Wicked Words on Instagram and Facebook at Tenfold More Wicked and on Twitter at Tenfold More. And if you know of a historical crime that could use some attention, especially if it happened in your family, email us at info at tenfoldmorewicked.com. We'll also take your suggestions for true crime authors for Wicked Words. Follow Tenfold More Wicked presents Wicked Words on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. If you like what you hear, rate and review the show.